Well, we're in Psalm 2, as we've just read, and as we continue to look at the Psalms in this in-between period of between being in a series in Esther and then looking at a series in Ephesians, we just keep looking at some of these Psalms. And Psalm 2 is a psalm that's frequently quoted in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, in the actual Psalter, that's a word for the psalm book, the book of Psalms, those 150 songs, it serves as, Psalm 2 serves as a second introduction. So Psalm 1 would be the obvious introduction to the whole of the Psalter, but Psalm 2 is a little bit less obvious. Nevertheless, it is connected. And in some rabbinical um, opinions, those two should be together. They should be all one thing. Now, we know that the New Testament itself divides Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 into two different things, but... We know what Psalm 1 speaks of is the difference between the wicked and the righteous as they relate to the word of God and respond to the word of God. And Psalm 2 talks about the blessing of the righteous and the judgment of the wicked as it continues on with that juxtaposition. And it has, Psalm 2 has exactly double the amount of stanzas or paragraphs and double the amount of verses as Psalm 1. So you can see some parallelism, some intentionality there with having a, a double introduction of the whole book of Psalms. And certainly the significance that it has is worthy of two introductions. Now, after having read this Psalm, you can already tell right away that it is a kingly Psalm, that it has kingly language in it, kingdom language, rule, authority, anointing, like you would do to a king. So we see that in these, uh, in these verses, they come out real obviously. There's no prescripted title. So most Psalms, have a like Psalm 3 would be an example. It says a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom. That's the title that's divinely inspired, not provided by a Bible publisher. Psalm 2 doesn't have that. But Acts 4.25, when the apostles are freed from jail, and one of the times they're freed from jail, they come and they sing and they praise and they pray and they preach and they attribute this Psalm to David. Peter and Paul say that this Psalm is a Psalm of David, which is why most of the unmarked Psalms get attributed to David, uh, because of that's the New Testament's pattern for that. So we see, if this is a Psalm of David, we believe that it to be, these 12 verses, you could see in these verses some uh, reference to David's kingship. That a lot of times what a messianic psalm does, you know what I mean by messianic? It's a psalm that speaks about the coming Messiah, about Jesus, though the Old Testament's written thousands of years before, or hundreds of years before. When we see this messianic psalm in, in Psalm 2, a lot of times what we do is we see David talking about himself and his trials, and then that has a prophetic implication to Jesus and the Messiah. Psalm 22 would be an obvious statement. That's where Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? They, they surround me like bulls and they scoff at me. They, they want to break my bones and then the hyssop on the, on the branch. All of those things are happening to David in real life. But then we see Jesus be the fullness of that. So this could be seen in that way as David is the king. He is the anointed of the Lord that's being rebelled against by the other nations of the earth. And, and there's, there's somewhat of a possibility for that. There's some clarity that we could see in that. But history, historically, theologians, pastors, the faithful men of the church, the leaders of the church, have seen this almost exclusively to be about Jesus and not David really talking about himself at all. Because all of these verses would be completely as true if Ezra or Moses or Solomon had written them versus David. They're completely true, completely connected to the coming Messiah, the reign of, of God's king that he puts on his holy hill. So we can see here that this is about Jesus prophetically and in the future, but it is about Jesus. It is about Yahweh, the covenant name of God, and his anointed, which is the Hebrew word Mashiach, where we get transliterated into Messiah. So we see Christ here unmistakably. So let's just make it clear that that's what we're after. So look at Psalm 2, 1 through 3. Psalm breaks down into four easy sections. The first one is the state of humanity. And what is their state? They're raging against Yahweh and his Messiah. Verses one through three say, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Who is the subject here? The nations, the nations are raging. Now, nations is the Hebrew word goyim, G-O-Y-I-M, goyim. It's peoples. It could be, if you have a King James Bible in your lap that says heathens right there. It can be translated pagans, people groups. It's similar to the word uh, in Hebrew for the word swarm. So just buzzings of people clumped all together. So you could say that this is the collectives of humanity throughout the globe and throughout time. Specifically, collectives of people outside the covenant family of God. That's who the goyim is. That's who the nations are. They reject God and they hate him. And that's actually their greatest commonality. They all hate the same God. That's the nations and that's their raging. And if you think about the divisions of humanity that being made right here and then the ones that we typically make, how many divisions are there in humanity? Well, from our perspective, it's like an endless number of divisions, right? Because you got nationalities, you got ethnicities, you got genders, more than two now, apparently. You have, uh, you have skills and abilities, height, weight, uh, intelligence level, graduate, non-graduate, socioeconomic. We could go on and on and on of the way that we subdivide people into divisions from our perspective. But how many divisions of humanity does God acknowledge? Two, the call and the goyim, the assembly of his people and the nations. That's it. That's what the Bible acknowledges, Israel and Egypt, not some in-between, not some third group, Israel and Egypt, the righteous and the wicked, the humble and the proud, the church and the world, those that rage against Yahweh and those who find refuge in his son, the sheep and the goats. That, I mean, that's just, that's too black and white. How could you possibly say we have to have a little bit more nuance? Well, how dare we be more nuanced than the Bible? And how dare we be less black and white than God? Two groups of people. That's what we see in this psalm. And what is the one group doing? They're uniting together against God. You see verse 2? They set themselves and they take counsel together against. Why? For what reason? The author is calling into question They've all done this, but he starts the psalm with, why do the nations rage? And it's, it's a rhetorical question. It's calling into question the legitimacy of their rage. Do they have any real reason to have this rage? Meaning they have no reason. One, one commentator said these are just madmen without a cause. That's what they are. They have no reason to do this. But it's a tale as old as human history, is it not? all coming together against God, 11 chapters into the Bible. That's what humanity does as a collective. Remember the Tower of Babel? They all, God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And what did all of humanity collectively decide to do instead? We will all come together and make a name for ourselves. It's not the children's Bible version of like, they were going to build a tower that goes all the way up to heaven so they could get in heaven and sit on God's chair. That's not what they were doing. They were directly rebelling against the God that created them and his orders, and we're going to all come together against him, make a name for us over against his name. This is always what unbelieving humanity is doing, determined to make themselves great in defiance of God. Just consider our own cultural climate. We see godless people all around us coalescing into one group, and they shouldn't fit together. I mean, think about, have you ever heard of a Muslim cake baker taken to court? Have you ever heard of a Jewish website developer being sued all the way to the Supreme Court because he won't make a thing for a gay wedding? And have you anybody ever said anything negative about the Hindus' discrimination in their caste system, that there are untouchable people that are not worthy of any kind of life subsistence? Does anybody say anything about that? How is it that Islamophobia is just as heinous a hate crime as homophobia? Why is it that avowed secularists defend Islam and the LGBTQ agenda? 
at the same time. It's because all people who hate the one true God find company with each other despite their divisions on paper. That's what Psalm 2 says, and that's what we can see out in our windows every day. Kings and rulers take their stand against Yahweh in various forms in every generation. It's perpetual. And it's their hatred of him, Yahweh, the God of the creation, and his Messiah. It's not just a generic hatred of religion. That's not enough. It's a specific hatred against Yahweh. You can worship Allah. You can worship Buddha. You can worship Skiva. You can worship Mother Earth or the flying pasta monster, and it's fine. The flying pasta monster is an atheist joke, by the way, just so you know, an official atheist thing, that we worship the pasta monster. You can even worship a God that you say comes from the Christian Bible just as long, just as long as he is never made known as to be who he really is. And as long as that I am that revealed himself to Moses is not who he really is, and he's, as he's fully known on every page of the 66 books of the, of the Bible. As long as it's not that God, then that's fine. But it's not just Yahweh's who is hated. Look at verse 3 or verse 2. Against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the word Mashiach for Messiah, the anointed one. That's Jesus Christ. That's the one that they hate. See, the Jesus that the nations tolerate is a Jesus that they can mock. They'll tolerate that Jesus all day long. The Jesus they can use as a swear word. The Jesus that they can use and make into a toy, like a plastic toy. A Jesus that, that who is your homeboy and is your cheerleader. That Jesus is fine. But as soon as the biblical Jesus begins to be made known, then the nations rage and foment their anger. My Jesus would never do or say that. Have you ever heard that? My, you don't have your own Jesus. There is one, and he's in here. So when somebody says, my Jesus would never do that, then they don't have the real one. They hate the real one. They fight and claw to cast off the bonds. Do you see that in verse 3? Let us burst their bonds. They're the God of the universe, Yahweh and his Messiah, are trying to restrict us, trying to hold us back from having our best life now. we got to break that and shatter that we got to rip apart away from that. They rage because of God's word. They view God's word as a bounding, a binding. They don't want to be bound by that. They love sin and their perceived freedom that it gives them. Yahweh and Messiah demand that sin be abandoned. Well, the nations won't have that. The goyim does not want that. They will unite together to tear off the fetters of God. Get rid of this. We don't want this. They will overlook their differences to cast off the bonds of Jesus. You're the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You hate Yahweh, you hate his Messiah, then let's unite together and do that. Why? Because Jesus told us what this would be. In John 3, 19 through 20, and this is the judgment. The light, Jesus, has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's why. That's why they don't like Jesus. They love sin. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light. Why? Because then they'll be exposed. Then their sin and the dirtiness and the wickedness and the crippling nature of it will be exposed. And they don't want that. They love their sin. Christ and the Christian faith could be tolerated by the nations if only one thing would change. You would get full toleration, full acceptance. Persecution would end if one thing would change. The authority of Christ and his right to rule. If you can take away that, that he has authority and that he has a right to rule, then you would get complete toleration on every level. If Jesus had just proposed ideas, a new philosophical perspective, they would never have killed him. You don't kill philosophy professors. You don't kill ideologists. You don't kill culture shapers and influencers. Who do you kill? People who say, I am king, bow to me. That's who gets killed. That's the Lord's anointed. And as his church, we can say anything out of the Bible and have no hostility from the world as long as everybody's clear we don't really believe any of it. 
You can read it, you can say it, you can bring it up in poetry, as long as they know that you don't really believe any of it and that it has no bearing on them. If it doesn't bind their conscience in any way, then it, all of it's fine. If it's just your thing and the, what you like, that's great. You're into that. But as soon as you say, no, this has binding upon you, then they say, no, let's cast off the binding, the fetters of Yahweh and his anointed. We have to get rid of that. Christ will not reign over us, says the Goyim. And what's God's posture towards this? Look at verses 4 through 6. He saw the state of humanity, now see the posture of God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. What is God's posture? He just laughs at them. Have you ever read this verse before? God laughing? You would think it would be this like Santa Claus, ho, 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 chuckle, everything is great. But when he laughs, it's in derision. And then he's, it's paired with scoffing. These connected kings that have coalesced against him, they're just laughable. See, these rulers have such a high view of themselves. They wake up every day very impressed with themselves. They're just amazed by their titles, by their power, that when he says jump, that person jumps and go, that person goes. I don't want these grapes. Take them back. I want those grapes. They wake up impressed with themselves every day. So just know that sin makes you stupid. It makes you stupid because you believe. They believe you're a threat to God's sovereignty. We're going to coalesce against you and break off your bindings. Sin makes you stupid. You're going you're gonna to bow up to God? I mean, this is like an alliance of four field mice against a lion. It's not even a whole bite to swallow you. I mean, this is, this is why God laughs at this. Does God tremble? Of course not. Does he meet within the Godhead and say, hey, we need to really need to reevaluate our strategy. They're coalescing down there against us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, what are we going to do? What's our new idea? They don't do that. Does he buckle his chin strap and prepare for battle? Okay, you want to go? Well, let's go. It's, it's a joke. It's laughable that they would coalesce against him. And he says in verse 4, he holds them in derision. If you have a New American Standard or other Bible, it would say he scoffs at them. That word scoffing is the same word used in the book of Nehemiah when Sanballat and Tobiah, the Horonite and Geshem, they scoff at the Jews for rebuilding the wall. Like, oh, a fox could just jump on that and knock it down. So that's the, that's the same word. This is not God just saying, oh, you guys. This is him mocking them, making fun of them, critically deriding them. That's what's happening. They're not only not worth God's concern, they're barely worth his attention in rebelling against him. He will only turn towards them in mockery and laughing. That is until he decides to speak. Look at verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. The only outcome raging rebels get from Yahweh is wrath. That's the only thing that they get. Not because his feelings were hurt. Not because he has a short temper or because he's emotionally capricious. That's not because of it at all. God is immutable and impassable. Do you know what I mean when I say both those words? Immutable means he cannot change. Nothing about God has, can ever change. He's always been what he always is. He always is in the present tense. He is. That's why he calls himself I am. Now, I was or I will be I am. So he's always the same. He's never changed. That's immutable. He's also impassable, meaning he doesn't have emotional responses. Now, we read emotional responses because we can't understand an existence like that. But what does an emotional response mean? It means that something outside of me acted upon me and caused me to respond in this way. I have a death in the family. I'm mourning and sad. Because I didn't want that. That wasn't what I chose. And it acted upon me. And now I grieve. Traffic is bad on 75. And for some reason, I'm shocked about it. And then I get angry and mad because of something outside of me happening to me. That's called being passable. That's acting upon me. God does not have that. He is impassable and he is immutable. So therefore, his wrath cannot be because you just stepped on his toes. 
You crossed the line. And he's responding like an angry superhero. You just pushed Superman too far. And now you get laser vision. That's not what God is at all. Most of what we have to do as Christians is particularly when we read these big passages uh, in the Psalms is we have to stop thinking about God as just a bigger, better, badder, tougher, stronger, smarter version of us. We are the deluded version of whatever it is that he is. We are a mere image of whatever it is that he is. He is other than us. He's not like us. We're like him. We're having to figure that out every time we come to the scriptures. Because God is creator. He is pure being. He responds to nothing. He's acted upon by nothing. He knows all. He controls all. And all that there is, nothing catches him off guard. Nothing acts upon him. He does, think about it like this. God never responds or reacts, ever. We have to read it in response because we can only think chronologically. So we see Israel do this, and then we see God do this. That looks like a response, but it's not. It's always been what it always will be because God is God, the great I am. Therefore, his wrath, like we read in verse 5, towards raging rebels is not emotional and it's not petty. He's not capricious and reactive. It's the only logical, appropriate conclusion. His wrath is upon them not because his feelings are hurt. They don't have the power to do that. You don't have the power to say something or do something towards God and then make him respond. You're so weak. You can't do that. Otherwise, you would have authority over her. Isn't that what every athlete tries to do? I'm getting in his head. I'm talking trash. You can't do that to God. He doesn't respond to anything that we do. So his wrath is just because he is merely being consistent with his nature. He has wrath. He is infinitely wrath, just like he's infinitely mercy and infinitely peace and infinitely love. He is infinitely all of his characteristics all of the time. He's not a collection of parts. He's, that's with simplicity, like we talked about last week. So they receive exclusively, the nations, the goyim, terror and fury from Yahweh, because not because they poke the wrong bear, but because it's the only faithful conclusion in his nature. That's the only thing that, that, that can happen. But this wrath comes orderly through a mediator look at verse six as for me god says now god is speaking it's been narrator this whole time now yahweh speaks as for me i have set my king on zion my holy hill this coalition of kings so they believe themselves to be formidable foes to yahweh because they are royal monarchs their title and their prestige and their power it gives them confidence and god says you think that you're doing this now in time and in space? I've already had my king. I've already had him, and he's on Zion. The significance of Zion is that it's a mountain. It's not really a mountain. It's a hill outside Jerusalem, and it has significance because it's the place of worship. It's the place where God commands his people to worship. That's the temple of God, the dwelling of God. And when you also Zion takes on, in the Psalms in particular, a heavenly connotation. That is speaking of heaven, the throne of heaven. So these kings... They they sit in Canaan or Philistia or places like that, but that's not where God put his king. The king is not in Philistia or Canaan. The king is not in London, in D.C., in Beijing or Moscow. His throne is in Zion, the holy mountain of God, the heavenly places. His domain is the entire planet, and he makes no coalitions or alliances because he needs no assistance. He has no deficiencies, and his realm is everything that you see and even things that you don't see, things above and below the earth, the Bible says. That's the realm of God's king. And this king is the anointed one, the Messiah, very God of very God, the second member of the Trinity. So the anointed one is also the king. Now, the king has a decree, and that's verses 7 through 9. So we saw the state of humanity, the posture of God, and then the decree of God. In verse 7, I will tell you of the decree. The Lord said to me, now we have a different speaker. Have you noticed the change? Now the anointed one, the king of God is speaking. This is Jesus. This is his voice in Psalm 2, 7 through 9. I will tell you of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The decree. You know what a decree is? 
A decree is a command. It's a statement. When a king makes a decree, it's the law of the land. Remember, we saw that word a bunch of times in the book of Esther a few weeks ago. That word decree or edict comes out throughout the whole book. The king is saying this because Haman told him to, or the king is saying this because Esther told him to. It's a decree. This is the law of the land. This is what is. So Jesus now, the anointed one, is making his hearing or retelling of the decree. So within the Trinity, that's what we're seeing right now, an inter-Trinitarian discussion between the Father and the Son before the Son is incarnate. The Trinity is love, it is communication, and it is covenant. This is partly why, just as a side note, the Trinity is a first-order doctrine, because if God's not Trinity, then he needs us. Because he didn't have love, he didn't have worship, he didn't have communication, and he didn't have a covenant. He wasn't a promise-making or keeping God then. But if he has all of that stuff, then he doesn't need us, like every single other monotheistic deity needs its worshipers. But God doesn't. That's why he's Trinity. That's why it's a first-order doctrine. And he recounts the decree of God from eternity past. The eternally begotten Son of God is also the Messiah King, his anointed, my King, my Son, it says in verse uh, 7. You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. And begotten is in the sense of of the uh, essential and eternal sonship. Not that Jesus or the second member of the Trinity, the Son, had a beginning point. He didn't. He's just eternally begotten. The only way that we can understand who the Trinity is is by God calling the second member the Son. And he's begotten, but he's eternally begotten. He never had a beginning point. He has the same nature and attributes of the Father. Now, in this decree, we see in verses 8 and 9 that there's a two-sided there's just two sides to the piece of paper that's written on. Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You, can you see there Esther with King Ahasuerus? What did he offer her at the feast? Ask me anything up to half my kingdom and I'll give it to you. Right? Remember he says that three times. Now you have the king of the universe and the real Jesus, not just a type of Jesus and Esther. The real Jesus being told by the Father, ask of me and I will give the nations, the rebels, the heathens, I'll give them to you. So there's this, there's this decree, this covenant of redemption inside of God before the foundation of the world. Ask me and I'll give them to you. Whatever you ask of me, I will give to you. Just like Ahasuerus had to do for Esther. Whatever she asked, he had to do because now his reputation is on the line as the king. So you see this side, the first side of the coin is, is just a possession. You want a people, I'll give you a people. We know that from places like 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race, church, New Testament church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, because he asked and Yahweh gave it to him, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. So we're a people but we're also a bride. Revelation 21, 2, and I saw the holy city filled with us, filled with the people of God, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So ask and I'll give the nations to you. These people come to you and we see just a couple of illustrations there of, of a real people and a bride, even a prized relationship. But the son is also a king who will execute judgment who has to carry out justice against raging rebels. Verse 8 says, uh, Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. But then the other side of the piece of paper keeps reading in this decree, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash in pieces them like a potter's vessel, just like a clay pot. So the son is often, Jesus is often perceived as just only mushy, only fuzzy, only cuddly. But here we see dashing with a rod of iron, just destroying rebels like you just throw a pot on the ground, a clay pot. Acts 4.10 or 4.20, rather Acts 10.42 says, And he, Jesus, commanded us, the apostles, to preach to the people and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. We have to know that Christ, the Lord, is the judge. Jesus himself said this in John 5, 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Do we see that? The Father is not the judge 
Who will be the judge at the end? The son. How come? The father gave it to him. Part of this decree, part of this covenant that they made in eternity past. Verse 23, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Verse 26, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him, the son, authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. So we see that decree that Jesus is now speaking as this, the third speaker in the psalm so far, that there is, you can become his people, but if you are not, there is only a rod of iron, there's only a dashing like a clay pot. So what is there? Is there any hope? How do you become the people of his possession? What do we do? As the raging nations, as the goyim, how do we become the kahal? The assembly of God. How do we become that? Look at verse 10. Here's the last stanza, and it's the hope of humanity. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Do we embrace the concept of warning as we should? What was Jonah's message? Jonah, who led an actual revival, not whatever's happening across the country, Jonah, who leads an actual revival, what was his message? It was only repent or God's going to destroy you. It was just warning. It was only warning. The book of Hebrews is structured around five major warnings. This is a thoroughly biblical concept. It's not popular today, but it's desperately needed. The concept of warning. For nine verses, this psalm has been extremely heavy. War between the nations and Yahweh. God's wrath and fury and his laughter and mocking and the son and Messiah's king's judgment. How unmerciful and unloving would God be to then not attach a warning? Not warn the people. Now you know of humanity's rebellion. You know that you're a part of the coalition of kings against him, breaking off the bonds of God and his anointed. Now you know of the son's royal judgment. The cruelest thing that you could ever do to anybody is know of impending danger and then not tell them. That means you don't love them. If you know the bridge is out and you let them drive that way anyways as you pass them going the other direction, you don't love them. If you know that the sun has wrath and you don't tell people, you don't love them. So if God doesn't warn us, then he has no love. Warning is love. Yet, in big evangelicalism, we've collectively decided against warning. Because people like you more when you entertain them on the sinking cruise ship. You're a buzzkill when you tell them there's a limited number of lifeboats and the boat's going down. Nobody likes that guy. Warning is unpopular for the very reason it makes you unpopular. Just ask the prophets and the apostles and the reformers and first-line missionaries, pioneering missionaries. It's unpopular to say with Jonah, Jonah 3, 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was his message. Have you ever considered the reality of Jonah and actually prove to yourself that you believe it's a real story? Because if you think it's just a fable, then you're like, ah, okay, yeah, the whale eats him up, he gets out there, everybody believes, and then, okay, that goes. He shows up to a town and just walks through it a couple of times, and his only message is 40 days and you're going to be destroyed. He doesn't go in there and earn the right to be heard. He doesn't go in there and find a seat at the cultural table or embrace the arts or, or figure out how to redeem the city. He just goes in and tells them God's wrath is upon you. And then what does God do? Saves them all. And what did Jonah know the whole time? God, I knew you would save them because you're merciful. If I warned them, I knew they would believe. But that makes us unpopular today. It makes us unpopular to sound like Jesus too in Matthew 7, 13 through 14, when he says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. If that's your message, then you're not very popular. Ironically, there's churches named Gateway 
who are very wide and are filled with people. But what does it say? It's narrow and few find it. And then to say the message of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What have we been talking about? The kingdom of God. God has a king. He's on a throne. His kingdom is everybody and everywhere. Or he has authority over everybody and everywhere. And there will be some that are in and some that are not. So the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, who are those people? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's unpopular to say, but is it merciful? Yes, it is merciful. It's the very mercy of God. Why? Why is it the very mercy of God? Because the warning of danger comes with the message of rescue. It, there's rescue to be had. Look at verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve also is translated worship. Worship the Lord with fear and with trembling. No longer worship yourself and serve yourself. No longer join yourself with this coalition of those who think that they are mighty and strong and smart. Reject all of that. Don't serve them. Don't worship with them. Don't go near them. Worship God. Serve God with fear. Don't fear man. Don't fear sin. Don't fear Satan who can do nothing to you. Fear. What can they possibly do to you? But fear God. What can't he do to you? Don't fear them. Fear God. And know that even with your trembling, you no longer tremble in front of sin or tremble in front of popular opinion. Oh, I'm going to cow down to them because I want to have their approval. Don't tremble at them. Tremble at God because his trembling is always mixed with what? What does it say? Joy. His trembling is not servile, uh, just true horror. It's mixed with joy. But if I'm going to finally please someone, whether it's the coalition of kings or the king, I'm going to not tremble at them. I'm going to tremble at him. That's what I'm going to do. That's what you're being called to do. But then you get down to the point of saying, okay, you give me this command in verse 11, serve the Lord, worship Yahweh with fear and trembling and rejoicing. How? How do I do that? Because I find in myself a tension. There's tension in my own heart. I really want the world to like me and to love me. And I find in myself that I do. I hate God. Even Martin Luther said that when he was saying, I don't, I don't love God. I hate God. When he was a monk in a, in a monastery confessing his sins for hours. Why is he in there confessing over and over again? Because he knows I hate God. That's why I do all this stuff. So if you have this tension and you're feeling this this pain, this racking, I hear the warning. What do I do? Look at verse 12. It says, kiss the son. Kiss the son. That's how you avoid the wrath of Yahweh. John 14, 6, Jesus speaking. This verse gets so much mileage because it's so easy to remember and none of us believe it. Because Jesus says, I am singular, the way, the truth, the life. That's the positive and the negative. No one gets to the Father but through me. Do we believe that or do we not? I am singular, the only, only path that goes up Mount Zion to the throne room of Yahweh is Jesus. The only source of life is Jesus. The only truth inculcating everything you ever heard, the only truth is Jesus. No one, so positively you hear it, and then negatively no one comes to the Father but through me. So how do I not get shattered like a clay pot? How do I avoid the, how do I get Yahweh to stop mocking me and laughing at me because I hold myself against him in coalition with everybody else? All you have to do is kiss the Son. Now, that word kiss can be translated pretty easily as do homage. It's bow down. That's what it means. You think that you're a king. He's speaking to kings. And when we, we reference kings, we most often think of like people in power and the seats of power, like the capitals of, of countries and states. But you're your own king and you're your own queen as a re rebel. 
I am not going to bow. This little kingdom in here, I'm not going to concede that. And I'm going to coalesce with other people against Yahweh as our own little kings and queens of our own little domains. So the only way to avoid the wrath, the laughter, the mockery, the fury, it says, of Yahweh is to kiss the sun. Do homage to the sun. What does that look like? That looks like a throne room. And Christ is on the throne. And then you come in with your crown. Everybody's in there. And you got your robe on. And you have your style. And the band's playing your music. And you're walking in there. And you have to, in front of everybody, take your crown off. Bow and kiss the ring of Christ. Because you're a rebel king. And he has an army that you cannot beat. What does a king have? When a king is coming to another king to make some kind of coalition, what are they saying? I am not strong enough on my own to deal with whatever enemy is at the gates. If a king is going to come in and kiss the ring of another king, what is he saying? You are stronger than me. You have more power than me. I cannot stand against you and survive. So instead, I'm going to come and make myself your servant. That's like Caesar coming to your little village and you send the chieftain out there and he just hands him the staff. We can't beat you. So we give up. We have to give up. That's what everybody everywhere has to do because we are all the goyim. We are all the nations. And if you will have Christ, it will be because you have kissed the son. It will be because you have paid homage to him. He is the sovereign and I am not. He is the Lord and I am not. Why is it so hard to do that? Because you love being your own sovereign. You love having all of the authority of everything that you do and say. And if you're going to avoid the wrath of Yahweh, that means you kiss the son and then you say, you know, he is sovereign. So now, therefore, I'm responsible to do everything that's in here, not everything that's in here. Not just that I've switched my insurance provider and they just give me the thing that I pay for. No, I have to go and find out what are the king's laws. I have to live that way. That, that's what it is. Now, he's completely taken over my whole life. This is the lordship of Christ. You cannot be saved and covered by the king and remain a monarch yourself. You have to bow the knee. What does Ephesians or Philippians 2 say? That one day, what's every knee going to do? going to bow all we are in the business of doing now as a church on this side of heaven is pleading with people to bow the knee now voluntarily before you are forced to bow militarily that's what we do you relinquish all autonomy all authority you conform yourself to his decrees you are no longer lord he alone is lord so kiss the son kiss the son and become part of the Father's gift to him. Kiss the Son. And be welcomed as a citizen in his kingdom. Kiss the Son and know nothing of the wrath of God. You won't even sniff it. If you kiss the Son now. And make haste. Because look at verse 12. Kiss the Son. Why? Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled you see the urgency of the author the author is saying do this now don't think about it don't meditate on it don't don't wrestle with it and go home and kick it around and get on google and figure out what you think do it now because you don't know when you're going to come into direct conflict with his wrath you don't know you don't know when the king who actually has all authority is going to summon you before him when will that happen you don't know so do it now. Hear the urgency. Like Second Corinthians says, today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is too late. You don't know when the king is going to show up at your gates of your tiny kingdom. So do that now because what will happen? You see how the psalm ends. This is the last words of this psalm. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. <laughs> can you think, can you just imagine the juxtaposition? This guy This deity who's been laughing and mocking me, who's been speaking of his fury and wrath against me, 
who has told me that he has a bigger, better, stronger king than me? And what happens if I come and do homage to him? He doesn't cut my head off for being a rebel against him forever. Like any other king would do, like they did to King Saul, cut his head off and then tacked his body up on a wall. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He becomes your refuge. He doesn't make you live as some kind of slave in his kingdom, some second class citizen, somebody that's just thankful that he didn't get obliterated. You become his he becomes your refuge. You're welcomed in as refugees who get citizenship in the kingdom. Not just toleration, but welcome and protection. Now that king, with all of his authority, with all of his eternality, with all of his immutability and impassibility, he's your protector and your provider. He's your savior. That's what he becomes. This is an unbelievable deal that no king would ever offer to any other rival king at all. But nevertheless, that is the king that sits in Zion. That's the king. That's the anointed of Yahweh. And that's how he rules. So we often think that if we, if we come too clear with the rod of iron that dashes the potter's clay, or we come too clear with the scoffing of God, and we come too clear with the, the, the judgment of the Son as Messiah King, that nobody will believe. Nobody will hear. Nobody will like it. Nobody will want it. Well, that's just because you're not very good at also proclaiming the refuge part. That you tell them how bad the bad news is and how big God is and small you are. But that forgiveness can come if you just kiss the sun. If you will take your crown, put it down, bow to his crown, then you are the refugee of the great king of heaven and earth. You are brought in as a special citizen, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, a bride that he would give anything for. That's who you become a part of. What greater cause for praise or for worship, for glorying or honoring God could we possibly have? So every Sunday, what we do in part is we come and we kiss the sun. We pay homage to the one who saved us, the great king who diverted his wrath from us. And what the psalm doesn't get at as clearly as the rest of the Bible does is that that king himself took that wrath for us. (laughs) He took his own wrath to save us. He sacrificed himself to save us from himself so that we would never know that wrath and only know the love of the king who has an eternal decree and says, my, you are my son. Today have I begotten you. Ask of me and I will give the nations to you. Now we're the Kahal and we're not the Goyim. We got reason to praise. Father in heaven, you are in heaven. We say that so often and as your son taught us to pray and the Lord's prayer to address you as our father in heaven. But that is the vantage point from which you reign. You sit in heaven and see all and rule over all. You don't have a, a, uh, a throne that's bound to a latitude. Every other seat of power, every other oval office or prime minister's chambers or king's throne throughout the globe, chieftain's chair, they can only see and only reign over just something small and insignificant. But you are seated in the heavens and you have placed your king in Zion. So we come as those who are joyfully humble before you, knowing that as we bow and kiss the sun, we no longer receive the the scoffing or the laughing. You don't act like other kings would or other bullies would, that when the weaker comes and bows and trembles before the stronger, that they just mock them as weak, even if they don't actually physically harm them. You don't do that to us. You you only do that to those who refuse to bow. You only do that to those who have stiff backs. 
But to those who have bent knees, you raise us up. You even say that you exalt us. We can't imagine that. We, we, we need more time to keep thinking and meditating on that fact. That when we come and admit our complete weakness, give up any semblance of power or strength, at that moment is when you fill us with strength. That your power is made perfect in our weakness. You are a God that we can know, but at the same time we can't fully know. And we thank you. We worship you for that. That's part of why we praise you. You are not an invention of our minds You are not a poetic construct of ancient peoples. You are not the opioid of the masses. You are the covenant God of the universe, maker of heaven and earth. And you have an anointed, a Mashiach, a Messiah, who is your son and he is also your king. And by your great grace, we are grafted into that kingdom, granted full status as citizens not merely leeches outside the walls benefiting over the dregs. You bring us in and you put us at your table as sons and daughters. Thank you for warning us. Thank you for attaching the glorious plan of rescue to that warning. Thank you for redeeming us and counting us among the possession that you granted to your eternally begotten son. We're so thankful to be his people, joyful to be his bride. Who are we to be loved by the triune, thrice holy God of the universe? But here we are. Thank you. Lord, we thank you. Bless us now the rest of this Lord's day. May we remember you in all that we do and all the interactions and conversations that we have. May we take this day to do things differently than we do other days because we need to be reminded of the goodness of our King. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.